Good morning, church. So if you've got a Bible, let me invite you to open it up to Proverbs chapter 3. We've been walking through the book of Proverbs and looking at theme after theme. We've only got about two Sundays left after this one, uh, having spent at that point 10 weeks in this book, and then we'll move on from here. But I hope that the study has been encouraging to you. It certainly has to me, just seeing the way that God's Word complements itself speaks in different ways and just fills out what our faith looks like on the ground. I'm, I'm grateful for all that I've benefited from personally just diving into the study of this, this great book. So I'm going to start reading in Proverbs chapter 3 beginning in verse 13 and I'm going to read through verse 18. Happy is a man who finds wisdom and who acquires understanding. For she is more profitable than silver, and her revenue is better than gold. She, wisdom, is more precious than jewels. Nothing you can desire can equal her. Long life is in her right hand, in her left, riches and honor. Her ways, wisdom's ways, are pleasant, and all her paths peaceful. She is a tree of life to those who embrace her, and those who hold on to her are happy. So our text ends and begins with the same word, happy. In the presence of wisdom, wisdom leads us into this thing, this this joyful experience that we are called to have with God. Let me just ask you the question. Um, Do you think that the Bible concerns itself with your emotional health? And it might sound like a trick question, and if it sounds like a trick question, it's because of an imbalance in the church, I would say, because so often in the church, we talk in terms of the one thing God wants. He wants action. He doesn't care about how you feel. He wants action. He also cares about what you believe. He cares cares about what you think, but he doesn't really care about what you feel. As long as you believe the right things and do the right things, the emotional health piece doesn't matter much to him. Here's the thing. Proverbs talks a lot about emotions. Proverbs uses a lot of feeling words. You look up the feeling words in Proverbs and they're all over the place. Anger, jealousy, envy, sadness, fear, turmoil, joy, courage, self-control, peace. Feeling words are all over this book and he's not just talking about them, he's exhorting us towards some of them and away from others of them. Feelings. Jesus talks to his disciples. He's about to leave them. He's going to die, right? And he's going to leave. And he says to them, in this world you will have trouble, but my peace I leave with you. Not as the world gives it. I'm giving a special kind of peace. And the peace he's talking about isn't peace in heaven. It's peace in the trouble. It's now peace that he desires to wash over and fill up his disciples as they live for his glory in a very broken and fallen world. The Apostle Paul, in Philippians chapter 4, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. I'm not asking. Rejoice in the Lord always. And then just a few verses later, he says, and, and don't be anxious. Don't worry about anything Instead, pray about everything and present your requests with thanksgiving to God, and the peace of God will 
guard will come flooding in. The peace of God will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. I don't want to give the wrong impression here at the outset of this message. I'm not trying to give the impression that by the end of this message, all of our emotions are going to be right, right? I would love that to be the case for my own life. That's not how it works. There's not like this, this switch. It's not like we're going to talk about the three things you do. You do this, you do that, and you do the other, and suddenly your emotions just come around and everything's wonderful, and you just feel happy all day. That, that's not where we're going. That is... Um, that is another form of the prosperity gospel. That is another form of triumphalism. If you do this, everything's going to sit right, even though it's a fallen world. So let me add that qualifier before I then say this. God's word doesn't leave us hopeless in the grip of our fears and our anxiety and our anger. God gives us, as believers, resources in the fight for joy in him. He gives us resources in the fight for joy in him. So we're going to talk about four feelings that we're called to pursue. So God's word calls us to boldness. Number one, boldness. And I think God wants to convince us that I don't have to live afraid. I think that's a talk that God wants to put in our ear. I don't have to live afraid. I... Um, had an interesting experience of fear as a kid. Um, after my dad passed away, God brought a father figure into my life and my older brother's life, and he was awesome. My, my sister was dating this guy. My sister was going to LSU, and she was dating an LSU football player, and she brought him home to introduce him to the family, and he was the largest human being I'd ever seen. He was, he was, on, he was a lineman in, on the LSU football team, and uh, he was pushing 6'6", six, 6'5", six, 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 probably 280, and just a, just a very scary human being. And, but he loved Jesus. He had newfound faith, just brand new faith in Christ, and he was passionate for Jesus. He loved us. He had a great sense of humor. He's just super cool to, to hang out with. Well, just after they married, um, I was in the back of, of Joe's car. My sister's in the front seat. We're riding through New Orleans. That's my hometown. Riding through New Orleans, and we're on a street, and there's two bigger boys, older boys than I am, and they're out in their front yard messing around, and I've got my window down, and they looked in, they saw my window down, and they taunted and shouted profanities at me. And instantly, there's just this sense of adrenaline and fear, and, um, and Joe's just driving, and, and for the next 30 yards or so, I think Joe internally is trying to decide... Uh, how long have I been a Christian? Um, so do, do, I, do I live the new life or do I not let that happen, right? And uh, so somewhere in that 30 yards, he decided, I'm not going to let that happen. And so he, he slams on the brakes. And then there's just an increased surge of fear. He slams on the brakes and he opens his door and he puts down a size 16 cowboy boot on the concrete and he stands up full height, and he says, hey, come here. And they didn't. They, uh, <laughs> wisely, they, they ran the other way. Within a period of seconds, I discovered this afterwards, within a period of seconds, I had two radically contrasted emotions. 
I had tremendous fear. 30 yards ago, I had unbelievable fear and trepidation and trembling. And then suddenly, this overwhelming fear gave way to overwhelming relief. Just instantaneous relief. And here's what happened. I could put it like this. My fears sized up against my help, and my help was bigger. So often in Scripture, that's exactly the dynamic God wants working in our minds and in our hearts as believers. He wants our fears to size up against our help, and he says, I'm bigger. <laughs> this is just obvious, right? So often in the, in the prophets, he's saying, so which nation are you afraid of these days? You're ringing phones, you're trying to forge alliances so that that other nation doesn't topple you and come after you. Hey, hey, I made them. <laughs> I made the world the ends of the earth. I'm the creator of all things. I'm sovereign over everything. Nothing's too difficult for me. I whistle for a nation and it comes. And if I whistle and say you come on Tuesday, it doesn't come on Wednesday. It comes on Tuesday. That's who I am and I'm yours. And I do what I want and what I want to do is protect you. So you're good. So often in the prophets, that's exactly what God is doing. He's saying, look at your help. Where does your help come from? It comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. That's what the fear of the Lord is meant to do. It's a bigger fear that drives out the smaller ones. When we find out that the bigger fear is for us, the bigger fear drives out the smaller ones. And you see what's going on here. Here's another proverb. In the fear of the Lord, one has, what do you expect it to say? It's going to have a kind of an emotional word. doesn't talk about trembling. In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence, and his children have a refuge. This is in your notes. You learn what the fear of the Lord is in this text by what the fear of the Lord does. The fear of the Lord in this passage gives one strong confidence, doesn't make you cringe in terror before the awesome holiness of God. Let me just stop and say there is that fear in the Bible as well, the one where we cringe in terror before an awesome and holy judge. Read Hebrews chapter 10 for that. Read the whole book of Revelation for that. Comes down, fire in his eyes, sword out of his mouth. He's coming to do business with a, an unjust and broken and evil world. And Jesus will come in that way to judge evil, and those who have rejected him will run the other way. They will look for refuge. They will ask the mountains to fall on us. They are running. They are hightailing it away from Jesus. By the way, the reason that Jesus came is so that you don't have to be one of those ones hightailing it out of there when he returns. He came the first time to, to pay for your sins in his body on the cross to give his life as a ransom, to be a substitute for sinners so that whoever trusts in Christ and turns from sin, his death counted as your death. Your condemnation is gone. It literally was spent on Jesus, so there's no judgment for you. That's the reality. And if you embrace Christ by faith, that your greatest fear is gone. Romans 8 there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the glory of the gospel. That's the central message of the Bible. The question is, have you trusted in this one Savior of the world? Is he your hope? He's the only hope of the world. Have you trusted in him? And here's the thing. When you do, 
the effect of this new relationship that you have with the living Lord, Jesus Christ. It's meant to be, for one, increased boldness. Increased boldness. Again, that text that I just read, Proverbs 14, 26. In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence and his children have a refuge. What so many of the texts in the New Testament start talking about telling believers to do the one thing that you never would do in the Old Testament. You would never saunter in to the Holy of Holies with confidence. One guy went in there and he was scared to death. You could die in there if you didn't do all the things you were supposed to do. That was the scariest place on earth. That box was the scariest box in the world. And then once Jesus comes and purchases our forgiveness, the the veil is rent and he says, hey, come on in. You just come boldly, come confidently into the holy place. This fear of the Lord in Proverbs 14 doesn't make you want to run the other way. This fear of the Lord doesn't make you seek a refuge. It gives you the refuge. That's what it says. Has strong confidence and his children have a refuge. Proverbs 28.1, many of you may know this, this proverb. The wicked flee when no one is pursuing them, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. The ones who have been made righteous by Christ have this boldness coming up from within through the work of the Holy Spirit. You you think about it, all throughout biblical history, they're beating the same drum. We see God telling his people, men and women, brothers and sisters in faith, and he's saying what? Hey, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed. I, the Lord, am with you. He's putting steel in their spine. You hear Esther, and she says, I'm going to go talk to the king tomorrow, and if I perish, I perish. You hear Paul saying to young Timothy, who's timid in ministry, and he says, hey, Timothy, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but power and love and self-discipline. We hear that Peter, the same Peter who denied Jesus Christ when the heat was on, And Jesus was arrested. But you check him out a little bit later in Acts chapter 5, and he's standing in front of people on penalty of torture and death. They've said, hey, listen, we're going to release you. Don't preach. And you know what he says while he's standing there? I'm going to preach. As soon as I walk, I'm preaching. What happened to this man? The Holy Spirit came inside and knew boldness. He said, as soon as I walk out of this room, I'm preaching. Why? Because we must obey God rather than men. You're mere men. I got a bigger fear than you. There's an applause that matters more than your applause. Proverbs talks about the applause of man. It talks about the fear of man. It says the fear of man is a snare, but the one who trusts in the Lord is safe. Fear of man is a snare. Ed Welch, author wrote an excellent book many years ago about the fear of man. It's called When People Are Big and God is Small. And the idea that he's advancing there is such a thoroughly biblical idea. He's saying so much of us as Christians, we fear the, the, the disapproval of people around us and we're controlled by their opinions. And so we fail to step up and be courageous for the cause of the faith. And he says, your problem is not that you need assertiveness training. Your problem is you got too small of a God. You need to see him in his word, all-sufficient, sovereign over everything. You need to see him as the greatest, most awesome God. The, the least foolhardy thing in the world is to trust that God is in control. 
The least foolhardy thing in the world is to trust that God is in control. Listen, when your soul and my soul gets convinced that God is absolutely sovereign, nothing is too difficult for him, his purpose can't be stopped, and this God is for you, (laughs) something starts happening. Something starts happening. You find yourself doing things you would not done before, trying things you would not tried before. You're, You're stepping out of your comfort zones in ministry. You're being stretched. You're more ready to share your faith. You're more ready to stand for Christ. You're less enamored by the culture's ideas and opinions and what the world thinks about you. In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence. Two, compassion. He wants to lead us into this sense of this attitude of compassion that says, I want to reach out to the needy. I want to reach out to the needy. He wants to plant that desire in us by his spirit. Proverbs talks a lot about the need, a lot about the poor. Proverbs 22, don't rob a poor person because he's poor. and Don't crush the oppressed at the city gate, for the Lord will champion their cause and will plunder those who plunder them. You know, the, the church is called to reflect the character of God. And in Proverbs 22, God says, you plunder the poor, I'm coming for you. You plunder the poor, I'll plunder you. I care about the poor, I love the poor, I champion the cause of the poor, I'm with these people. You don't take, don't crush them in the city gate, don't take advantage of them. The ball is already bouncing away from them, don't do that. He calls his people, Proverbs 28, 27, the one who gives to the poor will not be in need. But one who turns his eyes away will receive many curses. Time and time again, God's God's heart for those who are disenfranchised, those who are outcasts in this world. You know, wisdom, wisdom creates a culture. There's meant to be in the church an ethos of compassion. We're all supposed to smell like it. It it should be exuding out of us. the sense of compassion. We don't conjure it up, we don't fake it. It's just really there, it's growing. It might be there in the bud and need some, some enhancing, but, but it's there because the Holy Spirit wants to produce it and create it and fan it into flame. You, you think about the old story, right? The, in the Old Testament, the great redemptive story for them wasn't the cross, the cross hadn't happened. Their great redemptive story, the one they sang all their songs about, the one every time they got together for Passover and they said, don't we ever forget, don't ever forget what he did. What did he do? He broke Egypt's shackles, remember? He broke the shackles of Egypt and we walked through the water on dry ground and he made a covenant with us at Sinai and he gave us his law and all kinds of, just this glorious covenant relationship that began. And what did God do? So he rescues his people, brings them through the waters of the Red Sea, and then he has a family meeting at Sinai. And it's the giving of the law. And the giving of the law, in one sense, is God saying, I'm going to tell you, we've got a new culture now. So you had a culture in Egypt. You were there for hundreds of years. It's all you ever knew. It's not what you do now. We gotta, you're my family, and this is us. This is what we do as a family. We're different than it was in Egypt. Now bear in mind, before I read some of what that culture sounded like, bear in mind, these people are sojourning people. They, they live in tents, they travel, they pick up the tents when the cloud moves, 
Cloud stops, put the tent back up, we're staying here for the night, right? So there was a sojourning people, they lived in tents, and it would get cold out there, the wind howling out in the desert, nothing stopping, it's just come blowing through. And God says, he, here's, how, here's how God sets it up. He, he says, so people borrow things from one another all the time, that's understandable, I'm just gonna set some ground rules. If somebody borrows something from you and you say, hey, I need your cloak as collateral that you're gonna give it back to me, so give me your cloak or give me your covering, and God says, so when the sun goes down, I need you to give that cloak back. And you might say, if you're an Israelite, like, okay, so am I getting my thing back too or am I just kinda giving my cloak back? Because that was my collateral, that's my guarantee that I'm actually gonna get the thing back. And, and here's what God says, Exodus 22, 26, and 27. If you ever take your neighbor's cloak as collateral, return it to him before sunset, for it is his only covering. It is the clothing for his body. What will he sleep in? And if he cries out to me, I will listen because I am gracious. Isn't it amazing that the God of the universe tells his people, we're family now, and guess what's the culture of my family? In my family, nobody goes to bed without being tucked in. <laughs> in my family, everybody gets, everybody gets a covering. Nobody goes to bed shivering in my family. You hear it? You give the cloak back so your brother or sister can sleep. It's a beautiful thing. It's a culture of compassion. Proverbs shows us a surprising way to joy. What is it? Get out on a limb for hurting people. Surprising path to joy. And it's the exact kind of language that is used in Proverbs 14, 21. Whoever shows kindness to the poor will be happy. There's a path to joy. You want to be happy? Get out on a limb for hurting people. I, um, I watched a video this week of Mother Teresa, a very old video from um, many years back, she was invited by President Clinton to, to be the speaker at the National Prayer Breakfast in 1994. And she stood there barely able, you could barely see her behind the lectern. She was so small and bent over and uh, just weathered by suffering and a life of ministry. And her outward appearance was, was just feeble. And yet, there was an authority in her words that commanded the attention of the entire room. And clearly, her speech had not been pre-approved because she spent some time talking about the evils of abortion. And it wasn't a passing comment. It was nine minutes and 35 seconds, a slow brew of just talking about what a tragedy it is that we would kill our children. And she quoted Jesus, anyone who receives a child in my name receives me. And she looked out and she said, would you not receive Jesus? When you receive a child, you receive Jesus. And she made an offer and she looked out and she wasn't messing around. She said, the sisters and I are here. She said, if there is any child you don't want, please give me the child. And she belabored this point. She said, I want the child. And I listened to that. And you know, even in that moment when she said that, there was this uproarious applause that broke out and interrupted 
her. And, and then the camera zoomed out and the most powerful people on earth are pushing their peas around the table while there's thunderous applause in the room. Talk about speaking truth to power. You talk about boldness. You talk about compassion. It was all, it was all on display. And I watched that and having been marinating all week in Proverbs and the feelings that wisdom wants to create in us. And I thought, there it is. That's what wisdom does. Compassion is what wisdom feels like. Proverbs says to us, I want to see wisdom. And it doesn't say, show me your seminary degree. Show me how many you got in the room. Proverbs says, I want to see wisdom. Show me your prison ministry. I want to see wisdom. Show me what you're doing for orphans and widows and strangers. Show me your heart. Show me the way you care for people drowning in grief. Show me the way you run alongside people who are struggling to overcome an addiction. Show me the real stuff. Just like James. James talks in the very same way. Just show me. You're talking and talking. Show me your compassion. He says, all I know is I went to church and you had the poor people back in the cheap seats and you had the rich people with all the fancy access points, right? He's saying that's That's wrong. Compassion, where is compassion? Wisdom creates a culture in which the Christian sees himself or herself as sent. And sent with what attitude? Sent with compassion brimming in their souls. A wise church is a compassionate church. It's a generous church. A wise church is an evangelistic church, a missional church. That's why we keep saying, until we're blue in the face, we engage locally. And we better not not engage locally. We, in, we reach globally. It's who we are. Compassion's in our blood. It's the family ethos. It's the culture of God's family. Our kindness to the needy honors God. Our kindness to the needy honors God. It's not just an expression of uh, humanitarian concern. It's not just altruism. It is worship. Jesus said, when you did it to the least of of these, guess who you did it to? You did it to me. So God wants to lead us into boldness. He wants to lead us into compassion. He wants to lead us, third, into self-control. Where we say, I don't want to be led by my own instincts. He wants to cultivate this authentic attitude of heart. I don't want to be led by my own instincts. Here's what Proverbs 25, 28 says, a person who does not control his temper is like a city whose wall is broken down. Jerusalem knew something about being a city with a broken down wall. It's Nehemiah, the backdrop of Nehemiah is the wall is burned down. We're a city with a wall on a hill. We're practically inviting anybody to just come in. They can pour in through every orifice in the city and plunder all of our stuff. That's why there's so much of an accent on repairing that for the safety of the people. But interestingly, in Proverbs 25, that's a metaphor for the person who can't, doesn't have any self-control who can't control his temper. His walls are broken down and all kinds of sin and temptation can just come pouring into his life and destruction come pouring into his life. Why why did the apostle Paul say, I discipline my body. I buffet, I pummel my body so as not to be enslaved by its appetites. Why does he talk like that? 
Because without the Holy Spirit working in my life, I'm just going to obey my thirst over and over and over. And here's the reality. My thirsts are broken. If I give myself to every impulse, I'm going to keep hitting the self-destruct button because I have a... I have a threefold enemy, the unholy trinity, the world, the flesh, and the devil. They're after me nonstop. Can't give myself to my impulses. That's why Paul talks that way. Self-control, friend, is a fruit in, of the Holy Spirit's presence in your life. You think about that? How do you know he's there? Paul answers that question. The fruit, the evidence that he's there of the Holy Spirit is love. It's growing. Joy. Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. One of the sweetest evidences of the Spirit's work in our lives is Spirit-empowered restraint. You know, we get used to, in this world, we get used to just doing what comes naturally acting on impulse, and has there ever been a more self-absorbed culture than the one that we live in right now? I mean, self-hyphen words have just blown up in your dictionary over the last 20 years. Self-expression and all, you know, individualism is on the rise. So our impulses of anger and jealousy and envy and retribution and meanness All of that stuff, those things are just waiting there for our impulses to follow them. So what happens when anger knocks on your door this afternoon at 5 o'clock? Anger shows up. Showed up yesterday. It's going to show up today. At some time of the day, anger shows up. And what do you do? If you're impulsive, you pull up a chair. You you, you make a spot of tea. You rub its feet. You have conversation, right? It's hospitality. basic hospitality, right? I mean, somebody knocked at the door. You let them in. You you talk for a while. You spend a couple hours. You clear your schedule. That's what we do often if we're impulsive. We just give ourselves to anger. We give ourselves to lust, you know? Envy. Wanted it, bought it. Gluttony. Liked it, ate it. Ate it again and again and again, right? Whatever it is, we're acting on impulse. What if... But what if something else happened? What if the Spirit's residing within us, calling us and leading us to self-control? Anger shows up at 5 o'clock this evening, and you and the Holy Spirit say, wrong address. Not letting you in. Not going to say that word, that hurtful word that I said last time I was in this situation. Not this time. Spirit-empowered. Restraint. Do you check with God before you respond? You check with God before you respond. Here's the thing. As God's wisdom comes into our hearts, it feels like newfound power to choose what's best, to choose what's constructive, to choose what's holy. Here's how the Proverbs say it, Proverbs 16, 32, patience is better than power and controlling one's emotions than capturing a city. Proverbs 29, 11, a fool gives vent to his anger. That's easy. Anybody can do that. He said a fool gives vent to his anger. A wise person holds it in check. You see, wisdom walks with self-restraint. Wisdom walks with self-control. Your culture, think about the cultural moment that we live in. Your culture says obey your thirst. Your Bible says your thirsts are broken. Your culture says be true to yourself. Your Bible says deny yourself. 
These are radically contrasted messages. Titus chapter 2, verse 11 says, For the grace of God has appeared, the one that offers salvation to all people. It, grace, teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live. This is grace still teaching. Grace is teaching us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Did you have a category for the grace of God teaching holiness? That's what grace comes. It appears and it starts teaching, be holy, be godly, exercise restraint and self-control, say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. Grace talks like that. This week, think about it in your own life, this week, today, the Holy Spirit wants to give you power to say no to things that have been controlling you for too long. I'm not going to say that. said that yesterday. I'm not saying that today. I'm not going to think that. It just entered my mind. I'm not going to dwell on this. I'm not going to eat everything I want to eat. I'm, I'm not going to give my eyes to that thing. I'm not going to look a second time. Right? Self-control, spirit-empowered. I'm not talking about... I'm not talking about, you know, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and earning acceptance with God by any means. No. You're justified by faith and faith alone. That never goes anywhere. But the Spirit moves in and says, I'm going I'm to do some stuff. Is that cool? I'm going to do some stuff. I'm going to work in you both to will and to do of, of God's good pleasure. God wants to lead us into boldness, into compassion, into self-control, and finally into joy so that we feel this as true. In God, I have a continual feast. In God, I have a continual feast. Proverbs 12, 25. Anxiety in a person's heart weighs it down, but a good word cheers it up. Proverbs 15, 30. Bright eyes cheer the heart. Good news strengthens the bones. So practical application that was made famous by the great George Mueller, who was a great prayer warrior and ran an orphanage and just had tremendous faith, inspired many, many generations of Christians. And Mueller used to say, my first business of every day is to get my soul happy in God. It's the first thing I want to do. I'm going to get my soul in gear. I want to get my soul happy in God. So this is in your notes. The Christian's first aim of the day should be delighting in God. Delighting in God. You think about Psalm 119, longest chapter in the Bible. It's, it's, what is it? It's a reflection on the power of God's word to produce effects in the heart of the believer. I mean, real effects even in many cases, emotional effects in the life of the believer. Notice how Psalm 119 begins. Verse one, how happy are those whose way is blameless, who walk according to the Lord's instruction. Verse two, happy are those who keep his decrees and seek him with all their heart. So what happens tomorrow morning? Tomorrow morning you wake up, you crack open your Bible, and you seek him with all your heart. And you go after joy in God. You delight your soul in the Lord. That theme of joy, that theme of delight runs all the way through that entire chapter 
of Psalm 119. Verse 16, I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Verse 24, your decrees are my delight and my counselors. Verse 92, if your instruction had not been my delight, I would have died in my affliction. That's an interesting one because that tells you he's not talking about delight when the times are good. He's saying, I I would have died in my affliction had it not been for my delight in your word. Verse 143, we could look at many more, but this verse 143. Trouble and distress have overtaken me. This is not a good day. Trouble and distress have overtaken me, but your commands are my delight. Not they were, but now I've got the trouble thing going. It's trouble and distress have overtaken me, but I'm delighting right now. I'm delighting in your word. Joy is not peripheral to the Bible. It's, it's not the cherry on top that some Christians get every now and then. It's, it's, it's center stage. It's the star of the show. It's all over the Bible. I love the way author Matt Smithhurst points to the centrality of joy. This is an excellent little book. I would commend it to all of you. It's called Before You Open Your Bible, Nine Heart Postures for Approaching God's Word. Not a reader? Look how thin that is. How encouraging is that? Right? So, Here's one of the things he does. He starts riffing on joy, and here's what he says. I love this. What is the gospel? It's the good news that will cause great joy. What is death? Come and share your master's happiness. Mm. What is the goal of prayer? Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. What is the goal of fellowship? I hope to visit you and talk with you face to face so that our joy may be complete. What's the goal of engaging with scripture? When your words came, I ate them. They were my joy and my heart's delight. And then he quotes Jesus. These things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Joy. The joy of God's People, in light of that, next point, if, if the resting face of the church is mean or gloomy, something is wrong. This is what Proverbs 15, 15 says, all the days of the oppressed are miserable, but a cheerful heart has a continual feast. Again, I'm not talking about superficial happiness. I'm not talking about stick on a plastic smile and fake it till you make it. I'm not talking about any of that. Talking about something that's going on through the Holy Spirit's work and firing in the heart that can't be taken. Whatever's happening out here, it can't be taken. It's unshakable joy because it's anchored in God and He hasn't moved. It's delighting in God. C.T. Studd was a well known missionary to Africa. He was a man who knew something about the continual feast that comes from joy. In God. Um, they were so deep in the interior of Africa that their mail came only every two weeks. And so their existence literally depended on the mail and what arrived in the mail. So the arrival of the mail was an event, and C.T. Studd made it an event. All of his team would come out there, and he conducted like he was the master of ceremonies. It was practically ritual significance when they received and opened the mail. And here's what his nephew Norman Grubb said, one night there was a pleasing amount of money in the mail. Stud's comment was, bless God forever. He knows what a bunch of grumblers we are. He has sent us enough to keep us quiet. (laughs) Another night the amount was quite small. 
Stud's comment was, hallelujah, we must be growing in grace. He thinks we're learning to trust him. One night, there was nothing. Grub, there's the nephew, said that the missionaries gathered around Stud and they waited, wondering what he would say. They were not disappointed. He lifted his voice in a shout, hallelujah, praise God forever. We are in the kingdom already, for in the kingdom there is neither eating or drinking but righteousness, joy, and peace in the Holy Ghost. It's righteousness, joy, and peace in the Holy Ghost for dinner, guys. That's, that's what he's saying. But there's this, right, there's this unstoppable thanksgiving. How do you get that? Does, the, does God want to lead you and me into that or just, just people from, from days gone by? Alan Gardner was an Anglican missionary in the 1800s, and he had a heart. He had a great heart for the indigenous tribes of the people in South America, and so he planned an expedition with his missions team to go to the very bottom of South America and work among the tribes people there, and the plan was they'd get there, they'd start working among the natives, and then eight months later, another ship would come to resupply them with what they would need to continue 1851 is when they set out, and 1851 turned out to be everything went wrong on that expedition. The ship wrecked and, uh, on an island off the coast of South America, and many of the supplies were either lost or stolen by natives. And so when the resupply ship arrives on schedule, eight months later, everyone's died of starvation. And they just see, they see the broken ship, and then they see the bodies. And they're looking for Alan Gardner, and they, they found his body, and his journal was next to him. His final entry in his journal reads this way. Psalm 34, 10. Young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they that seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. And under that verse, he wrote his final words. I am overwhelmed with a sense of the goodness of God. How on earth? How do you do that? How do you starve to death and say young lions lack and suffer, but the ones who seek the Lord don't lack a thing? How do you go out that way? We're obviously not talking about giddiness superficial joy and happy times. Anybody can pull that off. Anybody can pull that up. You need the Holy Spirit for that. God wants to take us by the hand and lead us steadily on into joy in Him. Into a joy that can't be taken from us. You ever, you ever read about the martyrs? Why do the martyrs so often sing? They sing. They're being tied to the stake the fire begins around their feet and they're singing. Stephen's gaze is radiant toward heaven and the stones are flying in his direction. What is going on? How do you, how do, you do that? Be because they knew something. In this world, we will have trouble, but in Christ, we have hope beyond the grave. So we can, to borrow from Proverbs 31, Laugh at the days that are coming. We can laugh at what comes next. Not laughing 
not laughing because we're so strong, we're going to make it no matter what. We're so strong, we're kind of sauntering in. There's not, it's not that kind of laughter. It's not an arrogant, conceited laughter. It's, it's a laughter that only lasts because we're confident in who God will be in the future. He will be the same that he was yesterday and today and forever. He will be faithful. He will not change tomorrow. His promises will be fulfilled. They knew that. They had tapped into something. Jesus gives us a joy that's not dependent on our circumstances. The old old song we used to sing in our church growing up when I was a kid, and it repeated the first two lines three times over. This joy that I have, the world didn't give it to me. This joy that I have, the world didn't give it to me. This joy that I have, the world didn't give it to me. The world didn't give it, and the world can't take it away. It's an unshakable joy. It's a continual feast in him. So, Brook Hills, what do we do? Three, very briefly, three application points. Three words. First word, learn. Learn. Get a big view of God in his word. Watch him in action. Get convinced there's nothing too hard for him. He's, he's sovereign over everything. He's good. He loves you. He's for you. Learn it. Get it into your soul. See your God in the pages of scripture. Two, talk. Talk. Preach truth to your soul. The writer of, I love Psalm 42 because he's getting on himself. In Psalm 42, he, the psalmist preaches to his own soul. It's one of the most important lessons in life. Verse 5, he says, why are you so downcast, O my soul? He's putting his soul on the grill. He's saying, Why? And then, and then he talks. He's not asking questions. He says, why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. Who's he talking to? Himself, his soul. Hope in God, soul, for I shall again praise him, my God and my salvation. He's talking truth. He's preaching truth to his soul. Pastor Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of the great faithful British pastors of the 19th century, 20th century, said this about Psalm 42. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You have not originated them, but there they are talking to you. They bring back the problem of yesterday. Somebody's talking. Who's talking? Yourself is talking to you. Now, this man's treatment of Psalm 42 was this. Instead of allowing this self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. Why are you cast down, O my soul, he asks. His soul had been depressing him, crushing him. So he stands up and says, self, listen for a moment. I will speak to you. Some of us spend way too much time listening and way too little time talking, preaching truth to our souls. Get Psalm 103 working with you. Get Romans 8. Get 1 Peter 1 open and start telling your soul the truth. And third, finally, worship. Worship. So you might ask the question, understandably, 
what if the feelings never come? What if I don't, what if I do all the stuff, you know, you've given me two application points, I'm gonna do that all week, and yet at the end of the week, there's still no fire, there's still just dryness in my soul. I love what Sam Storms, there's a blog called Enjoying God, and he answers that question in such a helpful way. He says, so what should we do when we feel nothing? When we are bored and indifferent and dead on the inside, when we are downcast and can barely move our mouths to sing, what should we do when we've lost our sense of intimacy with the Lord, when we feel nothing of his presence, when there is but a haunting echo of his distance? What should you do? And he says, sing anyway. Worship anyway. Praise God for his matchless worth and his unexcelled beauty. Wait a minute, Sam. That sounds like you're encouraging me to be a hypocrite. I'm confused. I can appreciate that, he says. But what I'm advocating isn't hypocrisy because, get this, this is a mouthful, hear it. God is glorified by your longing for the joy that is to be found in him even when you are not yet experiencing it. He goes on to talk about this spark of anticipated gladness. I'm not feeling joy now, but it's coming. Joy is coming. God is faithful, and you say it because it's true, whether your feelings validate it or not, it's true, and it's what an act of faith that is. We don't live by feelings. We live by faith. But God has not left us without resources for the fight for joy. He has given us great promises in his word. And what do those promises do? They direct us. They push us. In the power of the spirit, they push us toward boldness and out of timidity. They push us toward compassion, toward self-control, and they push us toward joy in God.